Welcome ZooAssemblyers! My name is Zuka Zalishvili and I'm the founder of ZooAssembly. ZooAssembly is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2 CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose, or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZooSMLE. Now, let's start rolling. Today we are continuing our pediatric series, and this will be the last 8th episode of the pediatrics series. The first topic that we are going to discuss today is the Snellen chart. Before we dive deep into discussion about the Snellen chart, let me tell you one thing. Although we discussed the Snellen chart in the pediatric series, it doesn't mean that we don't use Snellen chart in adults. Yes, we do. We use Snellen chart in both adults and children in order to estimate the visual acuity. The visual acuity is the maximal visual ability which is mediated by the fovea centralis, right? Which is in the center of the macula. Okay. So Snellen chart typically has 11 rows and these rows have progressively smaller letters. The person sits or stands approximately six feet away from the Snellen chart and then we ask the person to identify the letters in the different rows. And depending on how far or how down the patient can go in terms of seeing the letters, we can estimate their visual acuity. The Snellen chart usually includes 11 rows and each row coincides with the different degree of visual acuity. The general rule of thumb is that the higher the patient stops, the lower his or her visual acuity is. In other words, if the person can see the letter in the very first row, but can no longer see the letters in the third row, has the worse vision than the person who can still see the letters in the eighth row, let's say. The visual acuity calculated by the Snellen chart is usually expressed as the ratio. And ratio may look like something something like 20 over 200, 20 over 100. And the idea here is that the more the ratio approximates 1, the greater the visual acuity the patient has. In other words, the patient with the higher ratio can see very narrow letters 
in the lower rows of the snail chart. And in contrast, if the ratio is going away from one, then the person's visual acuity is really deteriorated. And let me explain what the numerator and denominator mean in this ratio. Let's take the ratio 20 over 200. So this ratio means that if the object is 200 feet away from the patient, then patient needs to get to the object within the distance of 20 feet in order to see the object clearly. In other words, the patient should reach the object by 180 feet in order to see it clearly. 180 feet is the case in the is the right answer in this case because 200 minus 20 is 180, right? So we need to cover 180 feet towards the object so that we can see it clearly. And if the vision, visual acuity, is equal to or less than 20 over 200, then the patient is considered to be legally blind. And that's a very high yield point. What I'm trying to emphasize here is that the patient doesn't necessarily have to see nothing in order to be diagnosed with blindness. The official definition of blindness is the visual acuity equal to or less than 20 over 200. Let's do one exercise. So I'll tell you the ratio of the visual acuity and please try to interpret that ratio, okay? Let's say that the patient's visual acuity, according to Snellman chart, is 20 over 50. Could you please tell me what this means? I hope you're saying that in this case, if the object is 50 feet away from the patient, the patient needs to get close to the object within 20 feet distance to see it clearly. In other words, the patient should cover 30 feet towards the object so that he or she sees the object clearly. Okay, now the first row of Snellman chart is consistent with the visual acuity of 20 over 200. Let me put it another way. If the person can not see the letters below the first row of the Snellman chart, that's when we say that her or his visual acuity is 20 over 200. The second row is consistent with the visual acuity of 20 over 100. The third row is 20 over 70. As you can see, the lower we go, the more the denominator decreases, and therefore the ratio approximates 1. So the th uh, fourth row is consistent with the visual acuity of 20 over 50. Fifth row represents the visual acuity of 20 over 40. Sixth row is consistent with the acuity of 20 over 30 and then seventh row is 20 over 25 and finally eighth row is 20 over 
20, which means that the patient has 100% visual acuity. In other words, if the object is 20 feet away from the patient, the patient doesn't need to approach the object any closer. She or he can see the object clearly within the 20 feet distance. So this was discussion about the Snell chart. Now we'll discuss the standard pediatric immunizations in the United States. Here we will mostly talk about the different types of vaccines that are administered to the children and we'll highlight some of the important points about several vaccines here. Let's first talk about the killed inactivated vaccines which are routinely administered to kids. First is polio vaccine. Polio vaccine, let me remind you, can exist in two forms. We have the killed polio vaccine and we also have live attenuated polio vaccine. However, most of the times we use killed polio vaccine. It's also called sulk vaccine. In contrast, the live attenuated polio vaccine is called the Sabin. Sulk vaccine induces the IgG response, while Sabin vaccine, which is live attenuated, induces the IgA response. The reason we use killed polio vaccine most of the times, rather than the live attenuated, is that the risk of contracting polio by live attenuated vaccine is actually higher than risk of contracting polio from the environment. Okay, the second killed vaccine that we typically administer children, at least in the United States, is hepatitis A. Hepatitis A vaccine uh, is killed inactivated, as we already mentioned, and there are two doses of the Hep A vaccine. The first dose is typically given at the age of one year, while the second dose is usually given at the age of four years. The important point here is that the second dose of the hepatitis A vaccine should be at least six months apart from the first dose. Another killed vaccine that is routinely administered to the children is the influenza injectable vaccine. Just like polio, influenza vaccine exists in two forms. We have killed influenza vaccine and live attenuated flu vaccine. Killed flu vaccine is the injectable form, while live attenuated vaccine is intranasal spray. However, we usually avoid live attenuated vaccine because it is especially dangerous in immunocompromised patients. Let's take the patient who has um, HIV infection or congenital immunodeficiency. We can also think about the infants, right? So children less than one year old who have weaker cell-mediated immunity, and that's normal and that's natural. Or we can also consider the elderly people whose cell-mediated immunity weakens time by time. In this population, we should definitely avoid the live attenuated vaccine. However, even if the patient does not fall into any of these population segments, we still prefer 
the killed vaccine because it's safer and it has less risk of progressing to the fulminant influenza infection. Influenza vaccine should be given every year to everyone. It should be given at the beginning of the fall, sorry, at the, at the end of the fall, so right before the beginning of winter, because that's the season when the incidence of influenza rises every year. Killed inactivated influenza vaccine can be administered to the children starting from the six months of age. And after this time, this inactivated flu vaccine can be given every year. Now, the toxoid vaccines, which are routinely administered to the children, include the diphtheria vaccine and also tetanus toxoid vaccine. In both of these cases, we have modified toxin of diphtheria and tetanus. It's modified in a sense that it's inactivated by formaldehyde, and then we administer these modified toxins to the patient. Usually, diphtheria toxoid and tetanus toxoid are placed in one vaccine along with the pertussis antigens. And it's called either DTEP or TDEP. DTEP is given to children, and then TDEP is given to the adults. From the live attenuated vaccines, the most one of the most important vaccines that we need to talk about here is the MMR vaccine. MMR stands for measles, mumps, and rubella. MMR vaccine is given with two doses. So the first dose is given at the age of one year, while the second dose is given at the age of four years. Usually, varicella vaccine, which is another live attenuated vaccine, is given with the same schedule as the MMR vaccine. It's given at the age of one year and then at the age of four years. Another live attenuated vaccine which is very important for children is the rotavirus vaccine let me remind you that rotavirus is one of the most common causes of viral gastroenteritis especially in children the incidence of rotavirus gastroenteritis peaks in winter and it's especially prevalent in the daycare setting therefore vaccinating the children with rotavirus vaccine helps keep them safe from the rotavirus gastroenteritis that's commonly acquired again in the daycare setting. As for the subunit and conjugated vaccines, the first one that we are going to talk about here is the hepatitis B vaccine. There are three doses of hepatitis B vaccine and it is the subunit vaccine. The important thing is that even if the patient undergoes vaccination all three times, this does not guarantee the full immunity to hepatitis B. In other words, even if the patient has had all three doses of the Hep B vaccine, 
the titer of the anti-hep B surface antigen, I mean anti-hep B surface antigen antibody, may be low or maybe even undetectable. In which case, the person, the patient will need to get revaccinated. Another subunit vaccine is the pertussis vaccine, and the antigen that is used in the pertussis vaccine is the filamentous hemagglutinin, which is the part of the pertussis bacteria. As we already mentioned, pertussis vaccine is co-administered together with diphtheria toxoid and tetanus toxoid. That's why we call them DTEP or TDEP. However, let's keep in mind that we also have the separate vaccine, which only contains tetanus and diphtheria toxoid without the pertussis antigens. It's called the TD vaccine, and it's commonly used as the booster vaccine for the tetanus vaccination, which is, by the way, done every 10 years. Okay, this next subunit and conjugated vaccine is that of H. influenza type B. H. influenza type B vaccine is usually given between the ages of 2 and 18 months. And H. influenza type B vaccine has significantly decreased the incidence of acute epiglottitis caused specifically by the Haemophilus influenza. But this, has, this process has had important impact on the incidence of Haemophilus influenza caused by the other bacteria. Specifically, uh, acute epiglottitis caused by Staph aureus and Streptopiogenes is rising right now. Its incidence is rising. Another subunit and conjugated vaccine that is commonly administered to the children is pneumococcal vaccine. We also have the meningococcal vaccine, which usually contains the polysaccharide from four strains of Neisseria meningitidis. This is serotype A, C, W, and Y. And finally, we have the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is another subunit vaccine. And the HPV vaccine may contain the serotypes of 6, 11, 16, and 18, or it may contain even larger amount of the serotypes. The idea here is that HPV vaccine certainly contains these four serotypes because HPV 6 and 11, as we know, are responsible for the genital warts or condyloma acuminatum, while HPV 16 and 18 are the most common HPV serotypes responsible for the cancers, whether it's cervical cancer, vaginal cancer, penile cancer, or the anal cancer. And the first dose of the HPV vaccine is usually given at the age of 11 to 12 years. So this was discussion about the standard
pediatric immunizations in the United States. Let's now discuss the strength training or resistance training in children. First, let's define what the strength training is. Strength training, also known as the resistance training, is when the patient, either child or adult, exercises with the free weights and the weight machines. For example, with the dumbbells, which are free weights, or the weight machines, right? In other words, strength training uses the resistance to increase the patient's ability to exert the force. And it has several benefits for all patients and especially for children. First, strength training increases the muscle strength, right? Because when we perform the resistance exercises, then our muscles undergo hypertrophy and definitely the muscle strength also increases. The strength training in children, especially in children, uh, provides the joint stability. It also increases the patient's endurance and coordination. And finally, if the child is in the pubertal age or the post-pubertal age, then the strength training will increase the muscle mass. The idea here is that if the child is in the prepubertal age, then the testosterone has not started to, to be secreted intensively. And we know that testosterone is the hormone responsible for increasing the muscle mass. In other words, if the patient who is in the prepubertal age exercises with the strength or resistance tasks, he or she won't necessarily gain much muscle mass. However, all the other benefits will be there, which is endurance and coordination and joint stability. The high yield thing about strength training in children is pre-participation assessment. In other words, we need to define whether this patient is ready for resistance training. The first thing that we should do is cardiac and musculoskeletal exam. We need to make sure that the patient's cardiovascular and musculoskeletal system are mature enough and intact enough to tolerate this strength training. Let me give you an example of when the patient might not be qualified for the strength training. Let's say that we are performing the cardiac exam and then we hear the crescendo decrescendo murmur at the herbs point, which is the left third intercostal space at the sternal border. And in this case, the echocardiography might show dynamic obstruction of the left ventricular outflow tract. Guys, could you please tell me what disease I'm talking about right now? That's absolutely true. It's the hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And if the patient has disease like Hocum, then 
strength training, just like any other strenuous physical activity, might not be a good idea. Let's take another example. Let's say that the patient has the musculoskeletal pathology characterized by joint instability and increased risk of fractures. Let's say that the patient has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or Marfan syndrome. In that case, strength training can have very serious consequences for these patients, such as joint dislocation and fractures. Okay, so the point is that before we qualify the child for strength training, we need to perform the thorough cardiac and musculoskeletal examinations. And another important thing in pre-participation assessment is the assessment of the child's maturity. And in maturity, we mean cognitive maturity. In order for the coach to clearly give the instructions to the child and make the child do the tasks correctly, the child should be cognitively mature enough. In other words, the child should be able to follow instructions and follow directions. And this degree of cognitive maturity is usually achieved at the age of eight years. In other words, strength training before the age of eight years might not be a good idea just because the patient is not cognitively mature enough to follow the complex instructions directions. Okay, this was our discussion about the strength training in children, and now let's move on to the Sturge-Weber syndrome. But before we move on to the Sturge-Weber syndrome, let me add two more important things for the strength training. It's very high yield to remember that the child who is in strength training should be properly supervised by the coach. And additionally, the child should be properly equipped by the gym accessories that she or he needs for the strength training. The second point that I wanted to make is that the child should avoid to take on the excessive loads because this might be detriment detrimental for her or his joints and muscles. Okay, now we can definitely go to the Sturge-Weber syndrome. Sturge-Weber syndrome is most commonly caused by de novo mutation in the GNAQ gene. The Sturge-Weber syndrome is typically not inherited. So it's, it's uh, sporadic and it's caused by this de novo mutation in the gene called GNAQ gene. This gene codes for the alpha Q subunit of the G protein. The Sturge-Weber syndrome is also known as the encephalotrigeminal angiomatosis. I know that it's mouthful, but bear with me and let's break down the word. Encephalotrigeminal angiomatosis. It means that the patients with Sturge-Weber syndrome typically have the angioma or the vessel malformation in the brain and in the distribution of the first and second branches of trigeminal nerve. 
Now, the angioma in the distribution of the first and second branches of the trigeminal nerve is also known as the port wine stain, or nevus flamius. There's one very high yield thing that I would like to tell you guys. Although the nevus flamius, also known as port wine stain, is typically associated with Sturge-Weber syndrome, whenever we see the patient with port wine stain, she or he most likely does not have the Sturge-Weber syndrome. What I'm trying to say here is that port wine stain most commonly exists as the isolated defect, not associated with the Sturge-Weber syndrome. As we already mentioned, patients with Sturge-Weber syndrome also have angiomatosis in the brain, and specifically, this is the leptomeningeal angiomatosis. Let me ask you a question. Zoosemolears, could you please remind me which meningeal layers are considered to be leptomeninges? I hear you. That's right. It's the arachnoid matter and the pia matter. But when we say that patients with Sturge-Weber syndrome have leptomeningeal angiomatosis, we mean that these patients have capillary venous malformation in the pia matter immediately on top of the cerebral cortex. This leptomeningeal angiomatosis has two consequences. First, it can cause the seizures by increasing the uh, inter intracranial pressure and also by compressing the cerebral cortex. At the same time, it can cause the hemiparesis. And let me add that hemiparesis in this case will be contralateral. So if the patient with Sturge-Weber syndrome has the left leptomeningeal angiomatosis, it means that this angioma compresses the left-sided primary motor cortex. And we know that the left-sided primary motor cortex gives rise to the corticospinal tract that finally innervates the right side of the body, right? Therefore, the patient with the left-sided angiomatosis will have the right-sided weakness or hemiparesis. Okay, Sturge-Weber syndrome is also characterized by intellectual disability and the visual field defects. And very importantly, these patients commonly develop glaucoma. Now, this is a very strange phenomenon because glaucoma is typically the disease of elderly patients. But here we are talking about children who have glaucoma. And in Sturge-Weber syndrome, there is a very specific high-yield reason for these children to develop glaucoma. This is due to episcleral hemangioma. Episcleral hemangioma is another capillary malformation or the benign vascular tumor immediately on top of sclera. And that mass of the vascular tumor, which is located on top of the sclera, compresses the eyeball from the outside to inside. 
and this compression increases the intraocular pressure to the point that the patient then develops glaucoma. Therefore, children with Sturge Weber syndrome need the ophthalmological evaluation, maybe even regularly, to detect the glaucoma at the early stages of this disease. The way we diagnose the leptomeningeal angiomatosis is MRI of the brain with a contrast. And now let's talk about the treatment of Sturge Weber syndrome. Well, treatment is not curative here, but rather it focuses on the symptomatic relief. First, as for the leptomeningeal angiomatosis, we can perform the laser therapy. Laser therapy will burn off those angiomatous malformations or capillary venous malformations. At the same time, since the patients with Sturge Weber syndrome commonly have seizures, they usually take the anti-epileptic drugs. And finally, as we already mentioned, Sturge Weber syndrome is commonly accompanied by glaucoma. Therefore, they need the therapy for intraocular pressure reduction. And this is performed by the typical glaucoma drugs. This might be the beta blockers or alpha agonists like aproclonidine, bremonidine, or diuretics like acetazolamide. Okay. Here we're done with the Sturge Weber syndrome. Now we'll talk about the sudden infant death syndrome, also known as SIDS. We'll talk about the maternal risk factors, infant risk factors, and prevention of SIDS. Let's start with the maternal risk factors. One of the strongest maternal risk factor for SIDS is smoking during the pregnancy or after pregnancy. Therefore, mother and in fact all the household members should do their best to avoid smoking during the pregnancy of the woman and after the pregnancy. Additionally, maternal age less than 20 can predispose the infant to the SIDS. And then inconsistent prenatal care is another risk factor for sudden infant death syndrome. This is why we should encourage all the moms to give their infants the routine prenatal care. Okay, now maternal factors where smoking during or after pregnancy, maternal age less than 20 years, and inconsistent prenatal care. Let's move on to the infant risk factors for SIDS. First, the prone or side sleep position predisposes the infant to SIDS. And let's think about it. It's very logical. If the infant is sleeping prone, meaning belly on the bed, then she or he might have the face compressed against the mattress. And this can cause the asphyxiation. The neonate cannot rotate her or his neck freely. Therefore, if his or her nose is compressed by the mattress, 
he or she will not be able to rotate the neck and try to breathe normally. Therefore, the preventive measure for this risk factor is the supine sleep position of the infant. Another risk factor for SIDS is the soft sleep surface with loose bedding. Let's imagine the mattress, which is very soft. When we put the baby on that mattress, the baby can just immerse or go down into that mattress and asphyxiate with the mattress covering his or her nose. As for the loose bedding, well, all of those sheets can also cause the baby to not breathe normally. Therefore, it's very important that the baby sleeps on the firm sleep surface with no loose bedding. Bed sharing can also predispose the infant to the sits. The idea here is that if the infant sleeps in the same bed as their as his or her parents, then the parents may accidentally and unintentionally put their hand or foot onto the baby in their sleep, and this can asphyxiate the baby. So instead of bed sharing, we should encourage the room sharing. When the baby sleeps in the same room as the parents, however not in the same bed as the parents. Prematurity of the baby is another risk factor for SIDS. And finally, if the infant had the sibling who died from SIDS, then this infant is also at risk for the SIDS. Okay, we are done with the sudden infant death syndrome, and now we'll talk about the suspected foreign body ingestion. Accidental foreign body ingestion by the children usually happens when they are left for a short time without supervision. And they might uh, accidentally and unintentionally, unintentionally ingest some small toys, let's say the small cars or um, also the magnets or the batteries. And whenever we suspect that the child has foreign body ingestion, we need to do x-ray in two different views. First, we need the PA x-ray or posterior anterior chest x-ray and we also need the lateral chest x-ray. So these two views will help us visualize and locate the object. However, if we still cannot identify the location of the object with this x-ray, then we should do the CT scan. And if the, um, if the object, which is accidentally ingested, has the high-risk features, then we need immediate endoscopic removal. And let me tell you what the high-risk features are for the foreign body ingestion. First, if the patient has respiratory or obstructive symptoms after foreign body ingestion, this patient needs emergent endoscopic removal of the object because the respiratory and obstructive symptoms like wheezing, stridor, and signs like hypoxia, cyanosis, indicate that this object is stuck in the respiratory system, 
let's say, in the trachea or one of the bronchi, most likely the right main stem bronchus. Therefore, in order to facilitate breathing and restore the normal breathing pattern, we need to remove that object emergently. The other high-risk features for the object itself is are if the object is the button battery, magnet, or the sharp item. If the object is the magnet or the battery, it can burn the tissue uh, in the body. At the same time, if the child has ingested more than one magnet, then these magnets can compress the tissue between them, and this can also cause complications like perforation, bleeding, fistula formation, and so on. And finally, if the object is sharp, then this object may perforate the tissues, whether it's esophagus, stomach, or intestines, and it may also perforate the uh, respiratory, uh, so the tissues of the respiratory system. Therefore, if the object is either a button battery, magnet, or a sharp item, we need to emergently remove this object with endoscopy. Now, let's talk about the situation when the object which is accidentally ingested by the child, has no high-risk features. In other words, the child has no respiratory or obstructive symptoms, and at the same time, the object is not a button battery, the magnet, or the sharp item. In that case, we need to perform the serial x-rays. In other words, we need to repeat the x-rays, maybe uh, over several days, in order to track the location of the object. Let's say that the patient, the child, has ingested some non-sharp object, very smooth object, which is in the stomach. And this was observed on the x-ray. Okay, in that case, we need to do another x-ray in a day, on the next day or two, to see if this object is still in the stomach or going distally into the duodenum, right? And so if the object is moving along the GI tract, then it will likely be excreted in feces. Therefore, we just need to wait for the expulsion of the object. And the parents should be advised to observe the child's feces to check if that object has been expulsed. However, if this object with B9 features has no transit, in other words, if it stays in the same location after a day or two, then we need to endoscopically remove it because it will, not, it will likely not be excreted in the feces. Okay, so here we discussed the suspected foreign body ingestion. And now we'll talk about the timeline of infant nutrition. The first six months of life is the period when the exclusive food for the infant should be the breast milk. So within the first six months of life, exclusive breastfeeding is recommended because 
Breast milk contains almost every nutrient that the baby needs. Breast milk is usually deficient in vitamin D and also iron. So the infant might need to get supplemented with, two, with these two nutrients. Otherwise, breast milk is the ideal nutrition within the first six months. At the age of six months, we can introduce the pureed foods in the infant's diet. And finally, the cow's milk and the products made from the cow's milk can be introduced to the infant ideally at the age of one year. So this was a very brief discussion about the timeline of the infant nutrition, but the key points are that the child needs nothing else other than breastfeeding within the first six months. Pureed foods should be introduced at the age of six months, while cow's milk should be introduced at the age of one year. The next topic in our today's episode is transient hypogammaglobulinemia of infancy. Transient hypogammaglobulinemia of infancy is when the physiologic IgG nadir is prolonged beyond the six months. Let's take a step back and talk about the physiologic IgG nadir. So in the early life, in the first few months of life, IgG concentration goes down. This is because the infant's immune system is immature and it needs time to undergo class switching and to restore the normal concentration of IgG, right? To, to start producing the normal amounts of IgG antibodies. In some infants, the immune system takes more than normal amount of time to mature and start producing the normal amounts of IgG. Therefore, the IgG nadir or the trough of the IgG production is prolonged beyond the six months. And this is what's called transient hypogammaglobulinemia of infancy. It's hypogammaglobulinemia because we have low gamma globulins or antibodies in the blood. Usually, the transient hypogammaglobulinemia of infancy is asymptomatic because drop in the IgG concentration is not typically severe enough to cause very, very severe infections. However, this certainly can be the case. So the patient can have recurrent respiratory infections like pneumonia in infancy. And additionally, children with transient hypogammaglobulinemia of infancy are predisposed to atopy, which can manifest either with eczema or even food allergies. As for the lab findings, well, IgG will certainly be low because that's what the transient hypogammaglobulinemia of infancy is all about, right? So we have prolonged physiologic IgG nadir beyond six months. Importantly, sometimes the patients with this condition may also have decreased concentration of IgA and IgM. This is not a must, however, it's still beneficial for us to know that. 
Regardless, IgG will be low beyond six months in patients with this condition. Importantly, in contrast to the congenital immunodeficiencies, the patients with transient hypogammaglobulinemia will have the normal antibody response to the vaccines. The idea here is that immune system is intact. Although it's immature, it can still work. Therefore, if the patient gets the vaccine, then immune system will be stimulated to produce more antibodies. And this is in contrast to congenital immunodeficiencies like uh, X-linked Bruton's agammaglobulinemia or let's say common variable immunodeficiency, in which case we have deficiency of B cells, right? And, and therefore, no matter how many vaccines the patient gets, she or he cannot produce uh, enough amount of the antibodies. At the same time, the transient hypogammaglobulinemia of infancy is characterized by normal concentration of B and T cells, which again speaks to the fact that immune system is intact in this condition. It's just immature for more than normal amount of time. Therefore, the treatment for transient hypogammaglobulinemia is observation because most commonly, it self-resolves in early childhood. Right. Here we wrapped up the discussion about the transient hypogammaglobulinemia, and now we'll move on to the transient tachypnea of the newborn, abbreviated as TTN. Transient tachypnea of newborn, as the name implies, is the transient increase in the respiratory rate immediately after birth. I have a question for you guys. Could you please remind me the normal respiratory rate for the neonate, at least in the first several days of life? That's right, it's 40 to 60 breaths per minute. Therefore, the patients with transient tachypnea of the newborn have respiratory rate more than 60 immediately after birth. But transient tachypnea of newborn is a benign condition compared to the neonatal respiratory distress syndrome or PPHN, which is persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. And let's take a step back, talk about the pathophysiology, and it will be very clear for you at the end of this discussion of why TTN is much more benign than the last two conditions that we mentioned briefly. We all know that while the fetus is in the uterus, surrounded by the gestational membranes, she or he swallows and aspirates the amniotic fluid. And that's the normal process. Because amniotic fluid should be swallowed into the GI tract in order for it to be reabsorbed and then exchanged across the placenta. But at the same time, it should be aspirated in lungs so that it distends the individual alveoli and prevents the pulmonary hypoplasia. So what I'm trying to say is that the fetuses normally have amniotic fluid in their lungs. 
when the fetus is born, then this fluid is expectorated from the lungs so that the baby can start breathing normally. And here is the thing. In some cases, the amniotic fluid cannot be exposed completely from the lungs. So some of that fluid still stays mostly in the fissures between the lung lobes and also in the interstitial space. And this is what is causing the transient tachypnea of the newborn. Now, there are several risk factors for TTN. First, it's C-section. And that's very logical. Bear with me here. When the baby is born via vaginal delivery, the baby is compressed through the birth canal. And compression of the baby's thorax will just expulse the amniotic fluid out of the lungs. And therefore, babies who are born with vaginal delivery are at lower risk for TTN. But let's contrast this situation to the situation when the woman undergoes C-section. In that case, we make the abdominal incision and then we take out the baby, right? After um, incising all the necessary tissues. But when we take out the baby, there is no external compression by the birth canal, which means that some of that fluid, amniotic fluid in the lungs, will stay there. And this can predispose this baby to transient tachypnea of the newborn. Prematurity and maternal diabetes also predispose the neonate to TTN. And there is a specific reason for why maternal diabetes increases the risk for TTN. Whenever the mother has diabetes mellitus during pregnancy, this causes osmotic diuresis in the fetus too. The idea here is that the maternal glucose crosses the placenta via facilitated diffusion and then hyperglycemia in infant sorry, not infant, but the fetus, causes uh, increased glucose filtration across the fetal glomerulus and osmotic diuresis. In other words, the fetus of the mom with diabetes mellitus produces more urine. And we know that the amniotic fluid is the fetal urine. So there is a lot of amniotic fluid in the amniotic cavity, and therefore, the more fluid there is around the fetus, the more fluid she or he aspirates in the lungs. Therefore, there is a higher risk that some of that fluid will still stay there even after delivery. Let's talk about the clinical presentation of TTN. Well, first, as we already mentioned, the neonate will have tachypnea and increased work of breathing. However, the breath sounds will be clear. And again, this is in contrast to neonatal respiratory distress syndrome, when the breaths, where the breath sounds are decreased due to a diffuse collapse of the lung. The chest x-ray in the transient tachypnea of the newborn will show hyperinflation of the lungs and the fluid in the interlobar fissures and interstitial tissue. And this is the hallmark of TTN. 
the fluid in the interlobar fissures manifests as the perihilar streaks on the chest x-ray. And finally, let's talk about the management. Again, since the TTN is a very benign condition, it mostly needs supportive care, which means oxygen for hypoxia and the routine nutrition. The transient tachypnea of the newborn usually self-resolves in one to three days. So we wrapped up the transient tachypnea of the newborn and now let's move on to the type 2 osteogenesis imperfecta. Before we start talking about specifically type 2 osteogenesis imperfecta, let's remind ourselves what this disease is all about. Let's break down the word first. Osteogenesis imperfecta. It literally means imperfect bone formation. All the types of osteogenesis imperfecta are autosomal dominant conditions and all of them include the defect in type 1 collagen. Let me remind you that collagen is rich in glycine and glycine is the smallest amino acid because it has the smallest uh, R group attached to the core amino acid residue. And in osteogenesis imperfecta, the glycine residues in the collagen is commonly replaced by bulky amino acids, which contain the large chemical rings and structures. And these amino acids might be tryptophan or phenylalanine. And therefore, the triple helix of the collagen cannot form normally, and this will cause the weak bones. The type 2 osteogenesis imperfecta is the most severe type of the OI. And we need to know the ultrasound findings of the fetus which has osteo type 2 osteogenesis imperfecta. First, type 2 OI is characterized by multiple intrauterine uh, fractures. At the same time, it's high yield to know that fetuses with type 2 OI have short femur. And another high yield feature of type 2 OI is the hypoplastic thoracic cavity or hypoplastic ribcage. Again, all of these findings result from defective collagen and bone formation. The patient sorry, not the patient, but the fetus with type 2 osteogenesis imperfecta commonly manifests with the fetal growth restriction. This is when the fetus is very small and the fetal weight is less than 10th percentile uh, for the gestational age. And usually, osteogenesis imperfecta is characterized by symmetric intrauterine growth restriction because all the bones, including the skull bones, and the bones of the extremities and the trunk are affected equally. And finally, we already mentioned that type 2 osteogenesis imperfecta is the most severe form of this disease, and therefore it can also uh, be accompanied by intrauterine fetal demise or stillbirth. Therefore, again, type 2 OI is lethal. If the fetus 
is not dead in the uterus, then she or he has a very, very poor prognosis, prognosis even after birth. Yeah, so this was our discussion about the type 2 osteogenesis imperfecta. And now let's move on to the types of plagiocephaly. Plagiocephaly is the flattening of the part of the neonatal scalp, or, or skull, sorry, not scalp. And uh, we have two types of plagiocephaly, congenital and acquired, which is also known as positional plagiocephaly. Before we talk about each of these types and distinguish them from one another, we need to remind ourselves of the normal sutures of the human skull. We know that the neonates have anterior and posterior fontanelles. The anterior fontanelle is where the coronal suture and the sagittal suture meet each other. Coronal suture, as the name implies, is the suture in the frontal or coronal space of the skull. The sagittal suture, again as the name implies, is the suture in the sagittal or the midline plane of the human skull. And then immediately anterior to the anterior fontanelle, we have the frontal suture, which divides the, 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 the frontal bone. The posterior fontanelle is the place where sagittal suture meets the lambdoid sutures. The lambdoid sutures separate the parietal bones from the occipital bone on the right and on the left. Okay, now that we have reminded ourselves of the normal cranial sutures, we can talk about the congenital plagiocephaly. Congenital plagiocephaly arises from premature fusion premature unilateral closure of the suture. And the skull will flatten at the side where the suture is prematurely closed. So let's say that we have, the, the, the neonate has premature closure of the left coronal suture. In that case, the head will be flattened at the left anterior side and therefore the name for this infant's condition will be left anterior plagiocephaly. Well, generally plagiocephaly can be of four types depending on the location. The patient can have left anterior plagiocephaly, meaning the flattened part of the head is the left anterior part. The patient might also have the left posterior plagiocephaly right anterior and right posterior plagiocephaly. Another example that I can give you for the congenital plagiocephaly is when the lambdoid suture is prematurely closed. Let's say that the left lambdoid suture is prematurely closed. Let me ask you a question. In that case, could you please tell me which part of the head will be flattened? Are you saying left posterior part of the skull? 
Because if you are, you are totally correct. And in that case, the plagiocephaly will be named left posterior plagiocephaly. So the baseline idea here is that congenital plagiocephaly arises from the premature closure of the cranial sutures. And this is in contrast to the positional or acquired plagiocephaly. In that case, the pressure from the external structures on the skull flattens the head at the side of the pressure. So let's say that the neonate lies on the bed in a way that the maximal pressure on his or her skull is on the right posterior side. So in that case, the right posterior part of the skull will be flattened and we will receive right posterior plagiocephaly. But in this neonate, the right lambdoid suture will still be open, which is totally normal. So what I'm saying here is that the positional or acquired plagiocephaly is not characterized by prematurely closed sutures, which is in contrast to congenital plagiocephaly. So this was our discussion about the plagiocephaly. The only thing that I like to tell you further about the plagiocephaly is that congenital plagiocephaly is also known as craniosynostosis. Craniosynostosis literally means uh, fusion of the cranial bones and as we already mentioned this is what's causing the congenital plagiocephaly, right? It's the premature closure of the, of the cranial sutures that induce the congenital plagiocephaly. Okay, so now we can move on to the discussion about the urinary tract infections in children. Here we'll talk about the UTIs in children and also in infants. And we'll uh, compare and contrast the subtle differences of the UTI presentation in these two patient population. First, let's talk about the risk factors for UTI in children. The first risk factor is the female gender, and that's nothing different from the risk factors of UTI in adults. Just like adult females, the girls, little girls, also have shorter urethras compared to males. Therefore, it's easier for the bacteria to reach the, uh, the bladder and even more to crawl all the way up to the ureters and the kidneys. However, we should know that males can also get the UTI, even male children, especially if the male infant is uncircumcised. This is because some small amount of urine can accumulate under the foreskin of the penis, and this will result in overgrowth of bacteria there. Anatomical defects are very very important reason reasons for the UTI in children and in anatomical defects I mean physical ureteral reflux normally we know that the places where ureters insert into the bladder have very tight smooth muscle 
and that intramural smooth muscle contracts whenever the patient voids so that the urine doesn't does not shoot up in the ureters but some patients have very loose smooth muscle at the place of ureteral insertion to the bladder or they might have the anatomical defect which prevents the full closure of the ureteral orifice during voiding and in this case some urine will go back up in the ureters and may also reach the kidneys so that's what vesicoureteral reflux is and we should know that there are five different grades of vesicoureteral reflux depending on how far the urine shoots up so the higher the urine can go the higher the grade and the more dilated the ureter is the higher the grade of the VUR. Another risk factor for UTI in children and also in infants is constipation. Whenever the child is constipated she or he has these hard and impacted masses of stool and then the soft stool masses can bypass those hard impacted stool masses and constipation therefore can result in fecal incontinence later on and uh, contamination of the perineum by the fecal bacteria can definitely cause the UTI because those bacteria in the feces can crawl all the way up to the bladder through the urethra okay as for the clinical features well children experience the same clinical features as adults first they have dysuria or painful urination and in case of cystitis the children just like adults experience the suprapubic pain the fever the flank pain and back pain is characterized for is characteristic for the acute pyelonephritis rather than cystitis and again that's the same for adults systemic signs like fever along with flank and back pain is consistent with acute pyelonephritis rather than acute cystitis and this is where the difference kicks in for the children and infants the infants are not able to tell us that it hurts when they pee and uh, therefore the symptoms and signs of UTI in infants may be very nonspecific and that's true for almost all conditions in infants since they cannot communicate clearly what they need or what they experience therefore their symptoms are very vague and nonspecific so UTI in infants can present with fuzziness and poor feeding too and, and definitely the decreased urine output right now how do we diagnose UTI in infants and children well this is also the same as in adults first we do the urinalysis to check for the leukocyte esterase and to check for nitrites and also for the leukocytes and then we also do the urine culture right so in adults we don't always do the urine culture but in children we should uh, diagnose and we should confirm the UTI let me remind you that nitrites 
are positive only in case of gram-negative UTI. Could you please remind me the most common bacteria responsible for UTI in all patient population? That's absolutely true. It's E. coli, which is certainly gram-negative. And at the same time, the urinalysis will reveal at least five leukocytes per high-power field, which is the official definition for pyuria. Guys, could you please remind me the definition of bacteriuria? This is when the patient has more than 100,000 colony-forming units of bacteria per milliliter of urine. Right, so, and then now we need to talk about the management of UTIs in children and infants. We certainly need the antibiotic therapy, but at the same time, we may need to perform the renal ultrasound. The renal ultrasound is performed if the UTI is accompanied by fever, because if it's accompanied by fever, then acute pyelonephritis is suspected, and we need to check for the renal anatomy and any complications of pyelo, like perinephric abscess. But at the same time, renal ultrasound is performed when we suspect the anatomical defects underlying the uh, UTI in children or infants. Very importantly, if the child has had the first febrile UTI before two years of life, this suggests strongly suggests that there is some kind of anatomical defect. So we need to do the renal ultrasound to check for the anatomical defect, like uh, weak closure of the ureteral orifices while voiding. There is another test which confirms the vesico-ureteral reflux, and this test is known as voiding cystourethrogram, abbreviated as VCUG. This procedure includes injecting the dye into the urethra and then asking the patient to pee. Normally, the dye should not go into the ureters while voiding. This is because normally, the intramural smooth muscle compresses the ureteral orifices on both sides and therefore urine does not go up into the ureters. However, if the patient has VUR, even the grade 1 vesico-ureteral reflux, then some urine, along with the dye, will shoot up in the ureters. Therefore, when we take the uh, several x-ray images while the patient is peeing, we will see that the dye shoots up in the ureters. And this is indicative and confirmatory for the vesico-ureteral reflux. Okay. Well, let's move on to the vascular ring. This will be a short discussion about the vascular ring, but still it's a very high-yield condition for USMLE Step 2 CK exam. Vascular ring is abnormal aortic arch. Let's take a step back and talk about what this means. Normally, uh, the uh, humans have one aortic arch right? 
which then goes into the descending aorta. However, in some cases, some patients have the second additional aortic arch behind the normal aortic arch. And this additional aortic arch is called the vascular ring. This is because the trachea and esophagus are located immediately between the normal aortic arch and abnormal aortic arch. And you can imagine that this aortic, abnormal aortic arch compresses both trachea and esophagus. And the symptoms will arise from compression of these two structures. Compression of the trachea can cause dyspnea, it can also cause strider and hypoxia in severe cases, while compression of the esophagus will cause dysphagia either to solid foods or solid foods and liquids if this is complete esophageal compression. And esophageal compression will be evident on the barium swallow. So there will be this narrow segment of the esophagus consistent with the esophageal segment that is compressed by the abnormal aortic arch. The classic sign by which the vascular ring is, is um, presented in the cases is that the patients breathe normally when they extend their neck. And this is a very high yield uh, feature of the vascular ring. Whenever we extend our neck, we straighten up our trachea and esophagus. And therefore, we allow, so we, we relieve the tracheal compression by the vascular ring whenever we extend the neck. The vascular ring is commonly compared and contrasted with the laryngomalacia on the exam and also in, in the question banks. But let me remind you that laryngomalacia, which is due to the weakness of the and immaturity of the laryngeal muscles and cartilages, is characterized by worsening shortness of breath while lying supine. Because when the patient lies supine, this is when the arytenoid cartilages of the larynx collapse and almost completely shut down the larynx. But in case of vascular ring, the breathing will be relieved whenever the patient extends her or his neck. Okay, and the last topic of our today's episode is the mechanism of varicella zoster virus reactivation. The varicella zoster virus is transmitted by the respiratory droplets and whenever it gets into our body it undergoes the retrograde axonal transport which means that it will go up to the sensory ganglia. Uh, Varicella zoster virus commonly resides latent for years either in the dorsal root ganglion or in the trigeminal nerve ganglion which is also known as Gosserian ganglion. But regardless of where the VCV uh, resides latently, it can reactivate either by aging or by immunosuppression. And what we mean in VCV reactivation is that varicella zoster virus 
will move down to the axons, down to the axons, um, and, and, and will cause the symptoms like pain and rash. This is what we call the shingles. So the baseline here is that initial VCV infection is followed by retrograde axonal transport and VCV residing in the dorsal root ganglion or the trigeminal ganglion. And then VCV reactivation is followed by anterograde axonal transport from the trigeminal ganglion causing, let's say, herpes zoster ophthalmicus or from the dorsal root ganglion causing shingles on the specific unilateral dermatomes. Okay, so we have come to an end of our today's episode and let's summarize everything that we've discussed today. We have discussed multiple different topics across the pediatrics today. The main take-home message for practically all of these topics is to know how to diagnose them and how to treat them because that's what's the highest yield for USMLE Step 2 CK exam. You can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know how we can improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind attention to USMLEers and see you on the next episode.